Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history. Like hamburgers, laughter and trembling. Mm. Oh, I'm trembling at the <laughs> thought of that, Sam. Uh, we will be following the links in our minds, as always, as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example that the history of slime, yes, it does in fact have a history, is in fact all about the Industrial Revolution. It's all about lubricating machinery. Or that the history of uncles, <laughs> uncles, uncles has a history as well, it's in fact all about the reign of Edward VI, that boy king, the son of Henry VIII, that very young Tudor. Mm. I'm going to mention him as well in a minute. Uh, the man helping me co-pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man helping me co-pilot this very episode is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hi, Sam. Hi everyone. Now, this is another episode of our special homeschooling series for kids or, of course, for adults who are keen to just learn a little bit more about the past. In each episode, what we do is take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today, very excited about this, we're doing the history of helping out. Which, of course, is all about the First World War on the home front. But before we reveal that connection, Sam, we need to think about brainstorming. When you think about the history of helping out, what comes to mind? What springs to mind immediately for you? Uh, well, for me, I, um, I, I sat down and think about this and uh, I thought of people who try and help out but end out end up really not being very helpful at all and it turns out that meddlers yeah yeah this turns out has the most fantastically interesting history um because you can have people who do this who so they're trying to do their best but they end up not not only not helping out but being profoundly unhelpful to the point of being 
I don't know, culturally destructive, uh, murder, racism, all of the ghastly things you can think of. Um, you've got to look no further than the history of missionaries to look at this. So they were definitely trying to help out. They believed they were bringing light to to a dark world. Um, they believed that they were bringing their own modern, more advanced practices, that they were improving, that they were helping native communities. There are all sorts of wonderful examples of them fundamentally not doing this. Um, Dogon country, a wonderful place, this in West Africa. It's, um, it's a region off the eastern uh, Mali and northwestern Burkina Faso. And um, there is an area here um, where you've got inhabitants who've lived for centuries on the edge of a cliff basically a hundred meters long christianity is definitely one of the main faiths here along with islam um and of course you have traditional african religions now christianity is there because you have both catholic and protestant missionaries working there from the 19th century onwards they built churches uh, so you can see the the physical evidence of the churches there but one of the things they did is rather than promoting indigenous music in worship they introduced european and american hymns whose melodies rhythms themes distinctly foreign to the splendid music of the um the dogon societies and there was one uh, elder who was interviewed and he said that our Dogon instruments were forbidden by the missionaries. It's for pagans, they told us. No clapping or dancing was allowed. We just had to stand still, face the front of the church and sing your white songs. So a uh, really interesting example there of, of um, people trying to help out but ending up being culturally disruptive and destructive. Um, similar example in the South Pacific where missionaries... Um, attempted to wipe out local tattooing traditions. I've actually talked about this before, and they broadly succeeded, but they didn't in Samoa, which is why we have this wonderful surviving tradition of Samoan tattoos. So that's what I thought about, James. Um, <laughs> these poor people trying to help out, but actually uh, really, really not doing that at all. Excellent, Sam. I, I was much more uh, charitable in my approach to this, <laughs> thinking about how people genuinely help out. And in particular, because we're going to be talking about the home front, I was thinking other examples of that. And certainly you could think about that in the Second World War, and we're going to look at the First World War. But you could also think about the way in which community groups gang together or club together in order to help out during crises. I was thinking about you know some of the great sort of crises that we've had the earthquakes, we talked about um, volcanic eruptions and the, the kind mm. of organised community activity where people go and actually help people in times of need. And there are a couple of examples that I was thinking about um, that are become much more institutionalised, that start off as this sort of intense need to want to help out. And... I thought immediately of the history of Bernardo's, you know, the oh, yes. uh, the charity set up for, for orphans, which began in the mid-19th century um, with uh, a, a guy called Thomas John Bernardo, who was born in Dublin in 1845, moves to London, trains as a doctor, and basically, when he's living in London, he experiences, you know, dreadful conditions people living in great sort of poverty and disease he there's a cholera epidemic um he sees you know people dying left right and center and what he does is he sets up in when he's a, quite a young man he's uh in in 1867 he sets up something called a the ragged school 
uh, where children could get a, a free basic education. And from this, he is able to experience the real deprivation that people in are experiencing in the East End, children you know, sleeping on the streets, in the gutters. And he decides to give up his medical education and to basically devote his life to helping impoverished poor children. And in 1870, he sets up his first home for boys. So he puts a, a roof over their heads. The problem with a lot of these sort of philanthropic institutions is that there are limits and limits about the number of people that he could take in. And so there's one sort of tale where he starts limiting the number of boys who he could accommodate within his institution and then one particular 11 year old is turned away and later up later turns up dead and this leads to him a sort of real shift to actually yeah, to actually set up a policy when no child should be turned away and that you know and that sort of you know and this is an institution that still continues and does such valuable and important work in helping out uh, back to our tagline to the to this very day. I was also thinking of something like the Kinder Transport um, during the Second World War. Uh, very um, good. Yeah. And the the attempt to bring the very important work to bring about ten thousand Jewish children from Greater Germany, from Austria, Czechoslovakia, Bohemia, Moravia, coming over to to Britain. You know when the during the Holocaust, um, and and you can think of countless other examples like that. Uh, I, I'm thinking, I'm reading at the moment uh, Che Guevara's Motorcycle Diaries, and this is uh, it was an extraordinary book. I'd never read it before, and I want to do something on the history of motorcycles on the back of it. But one of the things is it's very similar to Bernardo because he starts off as a pursuing a medical training, does a, a sort of motorcycle trip around. Latin America and his experience of seeing the not only the poverty that people are living in the grinding poverty but also the way in which they people are just being exploited and this drives him to uh, and sort of galvanizes many of his sort of ideological passions to go off and really make a make a difference uh, and to help out so more of that in future episodes dear listeners If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, good stuff. I also, um, this was inspired by our previous homeschooling episode, James, on the history of revenge, where we talked about the Wars of the Roses, because there are moments there when the, uh, the King of England is unwell. So I thought about regencies about regents who are there to help out when the king or the queen, for whatever reason, is um, incapacitated or often too young. So Edward VI, got the young son of um, Henry VIII, Um, he's nine when he comes king. And Henry's will actually names 16 executors um, who were to act as Edward's counsel until he reached the appropriate age, which was 18. And those executors were supplemented by 12 men, um, so it, it wasn't a single person in this case until um, along comes the Duke of Somerset and um, and makes everyone uh, give him the power and he becomes an autocratic ruler. But there are a, an enormous amount. I didn't realise there were quite so many. I f- found a fascinating list of them. Um, these are just regencies in the Kingdom of England. So Elfrith, she is the, uh, the mother of Ethelred the Unready. So uh, she acts as regent until he gets old enough. Um, Richard I, of course, he gets... Um, gets uh, kidnapped and held for ransom after the Third Crusade, and William Longchamp acts as uh, his regent. Um, there's regency during Henry III, during Edward III, Henry VI, again Henry VI, that is uh, Richard, Duke of York, we talked about during uh, the episode on revenge. Edward V, Henry VIII, um, it just keeps on going on. Some really fascinating ones. Um, uh, Catherine of Aragon, James, and Catherine Parr. So Henry VIII's wives acted as regent for him when he was often fighting either the Scots or in France. Um, so uh, some really interesting stuff here, uh, all of which has its own history and a particularly large number of regents in the Kingdom of Scotland, which I think deserves its own episode somehow, James. We need to think of a way to do regency in Scotland without doing regency or Scotland. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I've been reading a lot of excellent Scottish history recently. There's been some brilliant mm. stuff uh, produced in... Yeah, over the last few years. So, yeah, very exciting. I'm very happy to do that. But what we're going to be talking about today is helping out uh, during the First World War. So this is 1914 to 1918, a great war. It's a total war. So it's it's um, it's one that that monopolizes all the sort of resources of the country and directs, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands millions uh, of 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 young men you know, over to to europe to to fight on the on the western front and 
I think what we're interested in talking about is how did people do their bit for the war effort? For those for those people who are left behind, how do they contribute to things? Now, one of the most important things to get your head around here is a very important act that was passed in 1914, shortly after the war had broken out. And it's called the Defence of the Realm Act, or DORA for short. I love the, I love the idea of it being DORA. Um, D-O-R-A, Defence of the Realm Act. And what this did was it allowed the government to control many aspects of people's daily lives in order to sort things out, to um, have a strategic alignment of efforts to support the war effort and to protect Britain. And there were all sorts of things that it basically allowed Parliament to do. It passed on the 8th of August 1914, simply five days after the war began. And it allows, it gives government power to pass various laws without a sort of protracted, long drawn out process that normally you would have to go through in, in Parliament. At a time of war, you need sort of emergency legislation pushed through. Um, and there are various things that they that they do. They uh, censor newspapers and correspondence to and from the the trenches. So the idea there is that you want to maintain morale and and also stop secrets, you know, moving around. You don't want any sort of strategic ideas sort of going around. So you're basically trying to sort of, you know, buoy people up, keep them keep them positive. Um, it also outlawed strikes uh, in factories that were producing goods you know this was something that you didn't want during during wartime you couldn't have that the working day was extended in lots of areas wages were were lowered or kept the same level because you know you're in a, a national crisis and what you want to do is increase production without actually increasing the cost of doing so it also <laughs> would you believe this uh, it affected pubs. So the opening times of pubs were limited. Uh, the drinks were watered down so that they were not as strong. Uh, you couldn't buy drinks for other people, would you believe? And the idea here is that what you don't want is people buying rounds and then people having hangovers and then, you know, you would have loss of productivity at, at, at work and, and people being late. So basically what you want is a really you know, empowered workforce working towards the war effort. And also people weren't allowed you controlled what people were 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 doing. You know, talk about military matters in public places was banned, spreading rumours about about military tactics. You couldn't buy binoculars, would you believe? You couldn't trespass on railway lines or bridges or melt down gold or silver or like bonfires. Uh, you couldn't waste bread by giving it to chickens. Um, you couldn't use invisible ink when abroad, would you believe? So there are all sorts of things that... Um, that hard they... to police, that one. Very hard to police, yes. The hidden history of policing invisible ink is terrible. So, there, so there's this big attempt to sort of control uh, lots of aspects of people's lives. But also there were a series of initiatives, things that people got involved in to help out. One of the main things was charities. Did you know that about 18,000 new charities and funds were set up during the war. 
in order to help the war effort. All sorts of things. I mean, not just the, the Red Cross, which we also see you know, playing a very important uh, role here. But things like um, the, the you know, National Egg Collection for the Wounded, uh, the patron of which was Her Majesty uh, Queen Alexandra. Um, uh, you know, the idea was that you would basically collect fresh eggs and that they would then go to uh, the soldiers on the front. And it's estimated that in August 1915... Uh, about a million eggs a month were sent to were collected and sent to soldiers either serving or wounded on the front and there are there are records from young officers talking about the contents of parcels that they received in the trenches so i've got an example here uh, from a memoir, Wearing Spurs, which was published in 1966 uh, by John Reith, who was a young officer in the war. And he describes some of the parcels that he received. Uh, he writes, One evening, a splendid box of candy arrived from a girl of whom I had never heard. Others followed from her at regular intervals. The explanation was that shortly after we had gone overseas, a photograph of the officers was published in a Glasgow newspaper, this young lady and some friends allocated us out among themselves with this highly satisfactory result. I never met her. So the idea that you, you know, you gather parcels of various sort of things, you send them off to people uh, fighting in the trenches. And there's one, uh, there's one account that not so positive uh, from Captain John Liddle, uh, who wrote to his family a letter in November 1914, in fact, complaining about some of the things that were sent to them in the in these parcels, <laughs> including the shoddy knitting uh, of socks that were that were without heels. So, um, so it, it's it's not all positive. That that's an example of trying to help out, but you know, meaning well, but not doing not doing brilliantly. The other thing that people could do to help out was to buy so not just charity work, but also invest in war bonds. Uh, yeah, so, in fact, investing a small amount of money or more substantial amount of money in war bonds to help and fund the war effort. You'd get a small sort of return on this. And the idea is that what you would get is a paper guarantee underwritten by the government promising to repay the bond plus a little bit of interest at the end of the war. So it's basically a it's a it's a conservative, secure investment that you're making but it's also part of your patriotic duty to support the war effort and this helps it helps uh, develop munitions so the other thing that we need to think about is not just charity work not just the investment in war bonds but also the role that women played during the war and working women in particular and with lots of men off fighting in the trenches and on the front uh, women were a very large potential source of labour. But it, one of the problems is that there are fairly um, conservative attitudes about what it was appropriate for women to do uh, that we see throughout history. Women seen as you know, relegated to the household, the home, the, their roles as wives and mothers... Uh, they're seen often as intellectually and physically inferior to men. Um, and and so that does restrict the kinds of things that they are that they get involved in. Nonetheless, there are an awful lot of single and working class women who played a very important role uh, here. And also, you know, also women in, in other 
in other social classes as well. Um, they worked in, in factories, they worked as maids, as nurses, in teaching, textile manufacturer. And there's a wonderful example of a woman who grew up in, in Russia, uh, Florence Farnborough. Uh, was a became a nurse in the Red Cross and she was living in Moscow, uh, worked as an English tutor to a wealthy Russian family when war broke out. She volunteers uh, to be a Red Cross nurse and then sees active nursing duty on the Eastern Front uh, where Russian forces were fighting against the German troops. So there we are, Sam. Uh, the, the, the important work that women did during the war in order to help out. But we're going to go on to talk now about the, the role in making munitions. That's right. I mean, particularly one of the challenges that the government faced um, during the First World War, and particularly the spring of 1915, was um, what became known as the Shell Scandal. So this is something that filled up British newspapers. And there was, the problem was there was a, a lack of shells on the front, and it was... Whether or not it was true is a different matter. It was certainly perceived in the press as being the cause of British military failures on the Western Front. And that whipped everyone up into a frenzy to try and get them to help out. So there was this, this crisis about making munitions. And they did this in a number of ways, some of which James has already touched on. But the bottom line is that they did succeed in increasing the number of shells manufactured from just 500,000, half million in 1914, to, get this, 76.2 million in 1917. So um, I can't even do the maths, but it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of shells. 50 times the amount of shells. Um, yes. And they did it in a number of ways. Um, first off, uh, they um, encouraged other factories to switch their production to war materials. Um, so we had bicycle factories, is, a, is an interesting example, become shell factories. Uh, that just rings a bell, actually, because um, bicycle. if you think about how bicycles are made, they're made out of metal tubes, and that's the same thing as guns. And I know that bicycle factories were used to make guns at some point in a different war. I can't remember where it was now. I will come back to you. But it was um, here we are, bicycle factories become shell factories. Um they, the government put people in charge of uh, privately owned factories to make sure that they improved their efficiency. Um, drink really was a problem. So I love this idea of helping out. But at the same time, there's quite a lot of stick, James, as much as carrot. <laughs> so rather than just saying, please just stop hanging around and stop drinking, there was a serious problem, which is why they had to make all the pubs close. A very famous quote from Lloyd George who's Minister of Munitions in March 1915, says, we are fighting Germans, Austrians and drink. And so far, <laughs> as I can see, the greatest of these deadly foes is the drink. Um, they did another thing, actually, to make people happier about working in these kinds of factories. They made a badge. So there was a problem with people who had, who had not signed up to fight in the trenches or at sea. Um, so... Uh, an unpleasant situation of being accused of cowardice. So they invented something called the On-War Service Badge. And that was given to people who worked in essential industries, so people like making uh, making munitions, and a very smart badge which they could wear, and it showed that they were on official service. They were doing their bit for the war effort. Now, women played a hugely important role in this story of increasing the uh, number of shells which were created. And there's some fascinating aspects to this history. Um, 
by 1917, there were 2.9 million women working in the munitions industry. There'd only been just oh, shy of, of 800,000, just shy of a million in 1914. So nearly three times the amount. The majority of them were working class. Um, and before the war, of course, they weren't working in munitions factories. They were working textile factories, often as maids and nurses. Um, and the, the work in munitions is very attractive to them because they were paid very well. Though, of course, don't forget, they were always paid less than the male workers doing the same job. A lot of the men actually also complained about the women coming because they saw it as cheap labour. They saw it as a threat to their own work. It wasn't great work. Uh, it was deeply unpleasant. It was also very dangerous because of the material they were handling, something called TNT. And that eventually killed over 100 women and made thousands more severely ill. So very nasty stuff. This is the uh, TNT. It is the explosives which was inside the shell. Obviously, if you're working with explosives, there's also the hor horrendous chance of um, your workplace exploding. Um, it happened at the Silvertown TN factory in East London on the 19th of January 1917. It killed 73 people, 400 were injured, and it destroyed over 900 homes. Um, and something we can come to maybe, James, when we talk about the history of houses, which I know we're doing. Um, so uh, other tragedies here. This is the story of Charlotte Mead, known as Lottie. She had five children. Um, and she worked in a wartime munitions factory in London in October 1916. She falls into a coma, um, suffers from liver, kidney and heart failure and dies. Um, and death was caused entirely by TNT poisoning. Um, and Lottie's husband was a, a soldier in France. He didn't make it home before she died. So often a lot of people think about the deaths of the men fighting on the, on, on the, in the trenches. And certainly there were many millions of them. But also you've got people here uh, at home doing their bit for the war and also suffering for it. So a very tragic story indeed. But a fascinating one, James, about how women helped out during the First World War. Excellent, Sam. And it's a really interesting corrective to the traditional view of the Great War or the First World War, which is often seen from the perspective of the trenches and actually looking at what went on on the home front uh, in, in Britain in this case. And we also talked a little bit about Russia shows that women played a very important role. But we do have a quiz, a quiz and a task. Uh, do you want to start with the question? Absolutely. In what year? Number one, in what year was the Defence Against the Realm Act passed? Oh, the Dora Act. Um, in number two, what role did charities play during the war? And how many charities estimated? Uh, how many charities grew up during the First World War? Uh, number three, what was the significance of war bonds? Number four, how many shells were produced in 1914 and also in 1917? And an extra point uh, for the maths of how many times it increased. Uh, number five, how did the government support increased production of munitions? And last but not least, uh, question six, who led the Ministry of Munitions? Uh, there's a clue here. He later became Prime Minister. Mm. I've got an extra question for you here. Um, uh, how it's a very simple question, and you've got two options. How dangerous was TNT? A, not very. <laughs> B, very. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very tricky one, that, Sam. And, and yes, we have a task. Yes. 
what we would like you to do is... Uh, this is a sort of a writing task. What roles did women undertake during World War One, And what challenges did they meet? So, what roles did women undertake during World War One, And what challenges did they meet? Oh, good stuff. OK, guys, hope you've enjoyed that episode, our little homeschooling one. We will definitely come back with more. And, of course, with more of our main episodes. We've got some really exciting ones coming up today. We are doing um, the history of houses and also the history of... James, I can't remember. What are we doing? We're doing the history of corpses. <laughs> corpses? How could I forget? Corpses. And, uh, yeah, How yeah. could you and, forget? Um, I don't know. And uh, next week, the history of first and the history of surprise. All great stuff. Um, do please keep in touch with us on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime history, the history of the sea, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's brilliant. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. We also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can check out our back catalogue and also order signed books, should you wish to do so. And finally, last but not least, should you wish to become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, we have a Patreon page. So if you head over there... Uh, uh, anything that you can do to help us in our quest to change the way in which people think about the past, it would be much appreciated. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> it'll be while, I, while I still have breath, uh, meanwhile, thank you so much for listening and take care, be well and enjoy history wherever you are. <laughs> Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.